0: The level of competition, as you learn from talking to Mark, it just keeps getting higher. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of what the Yankees have done, you know, they keep Mm -hmm. winning a 100 games every season. They've really Mm -hmm. done a great job. So it's harder and harder every single year to be competitive, especially in this division. But it's what makes
1: it fun and interesting. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Baseball's finally starting. Well, let's hope it is starting. Late, very late, with lots of bumps in the road. And hopefully COVID won't overtake all of these plans. But I have an interesting episode for you today, which was recorded in winter, before COVID, before the report on the Houston Astros cheating, before the Boston Red Sox manager Alex Cora was fired as a result of that uh, major league investigation. It's a flashback episode, kind of to get us in the mood for baseball. And it's with Sam Kennedy the CEO of the Boston Red Sox. Not just a flashback episode, but an episode that will give us insight into the mind and the thinking and the personality and background of Sam Kennedy. How did a kid from Newton, a Boston suburb, make it to the very top of of Boston Sports Royalty. You know, we've talked to sports executives before, Mark Shapiro, the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays in particular, both last year on the SIDCast and recently along with his father, the sports agent, Ron Shapiro. So we know something about leadership in sports, but it got me thinking about leadership in sports versus leadership in other fields. And also what we know about leadership and training and hard work and motivation in sports, and especially how does it translate to the business world or even everyday life. So let me share three insights I've learned from my own work and these podcasts and research as well on this topic. First, as an industry, the sports world is in desperate need of adapting. We're all learning to live without sports because of COVID and a bond that's existed between all of us, between sports fans and the sports leagues themselves and sports teams themselves, a bond that's existed for decades has been broken. And the question is, are we all going to run back to sports uh, now that they're about to return? And this is true, not just for Major League Baseball, but the NBA and the National Hockey League as well, Which sports will do better than others. You know, like businesses that were broken before COVID and have not been able to survive this downturn, and we're seeing companies like Hertz and Brooks Brothers in that category and lots of others as well, which sports have been so broken for so long that they actually won't be able to recover as well. I know that sounds probably a bit too dramatic, but there's one thing we know about any business. No one has the right to exist, let alone thrive, unless your customers decide to grant you that right. I love baseball, but I'm worried that baseball has a very big problem. From the endless battle to open this season, I mean, it's taken forever to get some type of agreement, and in the end the owners had to push it down the throats of the players, you know, to this open fighting problems that have barely been addressed for years, the pace of the game, games that seem to go on forever, you know, a pace of a game, how do you match that against the energy and excitement of basketball and hockey and football for that matter? Ingrained cheating scandals, adherence to this anarchic rules, formal and informal no one can really understand all these rules and why they're there, and a league of players that doesn't look like America as much as it used to be. So I'm a little bit worried about the future of baseball. And baseball is in desperate need of adapting. And I think starting extra innings with a base runner on second base is not going to cut it when it comes to adapting. Number two, the team is important, but it's not everything. Each person on a team has to be driven to excel, to commit. I mean, why did Michael Jordan show up earlier and leave later than everyone else? Why did Wayne Gretzky do exactly the same thing? How about Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, soccer player of the last 10 years? He works out four hours a day, five days a week, and he sleeps, and that's pretty much his schedule when he's not playing. He's doing this around the year, all year round. He lives to compete. Why do the world's top athletes prepare to compete 12 months a year, even when they're quote unquote off for a portion of that time. You know, great teams can make up for a lot. We understand that. But with very few exceptions, will a great team beat another team where each player is absolutely driven to excel and has that talent? That's an interesting question. And we're in an era where everybody says teams, teams, teams. And I believe it. Yes, but boy, teams cannot make up for raw talent that is driven to bring out every last ounce of that talent. And every now and then in the world of sports, we see people like that. And every now and then in the world of business, we see people like that. And I like to make bets on people that are willing to go for it, that have that type of tremendous aspiration and motivation. Number three, data analytics. Data analytics are becoming more and more important in assessing talent. And we've gotten so far, and it's pretty far, it seems like there's much more to come. Traditional data analytics tell us things like, you know, in baseball, home runs are very important, or that pitchers should be evaluated independent of the fielders around them because the fielders could mess up and it's not the pitcher's fault. And so they've come up with a metric called FIP, FIP, which is fielding independent pitching. So baseball's done this kind of traditional data analytics and it's gone really far. It's all good. It's becoming standard, but it's all based on one dimension, which is quantitative data. The next phase, which is happening already, is using video much more aggressively, especially for pitchers. But it's not only video that is about assessing and identifying metrics on who's good and who's not, but can also teach players how to perform at a higher level, knowing that spin rotations are important for a pitcher is valuable. The next stage is starting to teach pitchers how to shift their mechanics, physical mechanics, to increase spin rotation. But what's missing is something we might call mental mechanics, the psychology of performance, and how it could work together with physical mechanics. These two fields, of course, have progressed a lot, but in separate silos. And I'm waiting to see who's going to be able to integrate the physical and the mental, not only in kind of an additive way that, you know, both are important, but in a multiplicative way where one builds on the other. And one more thing, what about judgment, the most elusive and sometimes the most important attribute of effective leadership and of sports performance? For everyone who's thinking that we've gone as far as we can I say this is just the beginning. And maybe that's why so many sports executives, as well as general managers and managers, are trending younger and younger. It used to be about paying your dues, learning the ropes, waiting your turn. But, you know, these sound like kind of quaint notions today. Now it's more about breaking the rules, jumping ahead, embracing change, understanding what leadership really is, and actively fighting against the status quo, even when you were the one who set that status quo into place in your organization. I mean, what are the odds of Sam Kennedy, the CEO of the Boston Red Sox, going to high school, becoming good friends. In fact, playing on the same high school baseball team as maybe the most important executive in modern Boston Red Sox history, the man who engineered the team that broke the curse, Theo Epstein. How cool is that? It's as if you looked at your kid's baseball team today or soccer team or whatever sport they play or used to play in the pre-COVID era, and hopefully we'll get back to playing very soon. And you then fast forward 25 years and see not one, but two players sitting at the very top of that sports hierarchy. It's really interesting. Sam Kennedy is a fascinating person. He's been with the Red Sox, actually for 18 years. The last three is president and chief executive officer. He also acts as a chief executive of Fenway Sports Management, which is a sports marketing and sales agency, kind of a sister company to the Red Sox under the Fenway Sports Group family. I met and spoke to Sam Kennedy and recorded this episode at Fenway Park, which was a thrill to go through the bowels of the stadium and uh, be in his conference room and then kind of walk out and you're all of a sudden uh, looking out at the field. It was really exciting and cool, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did in bringing it to you. Welcome back to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here today with the CEO of the Boston Red Sox, Sam Kennedy. Hi, Sam. Hi, great to be with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm in Fenway Park, which is really exciting, <laughs> as all New Englanders know. So you get a little goosebumps anytime you walk in and see the field, even though it's covered with not quite season time yet. So, you know, the first thing I want to ask you is, you, so you grew up in Boston, Brookline, and you were a baseball player in high school. You probably <laughs> dreamed of playing for the Red Sox, <laughs> exactly, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah, no, I feel very, very fortunate. Grew
0: up, actually born in the south end of Boston. My dad was an Episcopal clergyman. We moved out to Brookline in time for middle school and uh, went to Brookline High and was a very below average baseball player. <laughs> and so I kind of knew at a young age that I should think about other ways
1: to stay attached to the game other than playing. Right. So, you just made me think <laughs> of something. One of the sitcast trademarks is I find a tangent that just fascinating. You say, I wasn't that good a ball player, but now you're running a team. <laughs> I have this hypothesis about players that the best players are not necessarily necessarily the best coaches. And I don't know if you've seen that or agree with that. And I think about a Michael Jordan or a Wayne Gretzky in yeah. hockey. Gretzky can't coach. He's a genius. Yeah. And so, you know, that doesn't mean he can't. But you know, in baseball, a lot of coaches are catchers. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's something to be said for that. Probably the most
0: gifted athletes and professional players probably struggle to relay you know how to yeah. see the game or yeah. think about the game because it comes so naturally and easily for them. And it may be frustrating to try and right. sort of impart that wisdom. Although well, there certainly are exceptions to, you know, you have players that have got great players that have gone on to coach, but I think for the most part, you'll see a lot of maybe backup catchers yeah. or utility infielders mm-hmm.
1: or people that never made the major leagues at all. So it, it's interesting. And you certainly see that in the front office. And you see in the front office as the front office become younger and younger as yeah. we'll talk about. And a little side note that I read about Brookline is one of your classmates. <laughs> yes. And then none other than Theo Epstein. <laughs> yes. I mean, what are the odds of that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, we actually grew up, our dads are very close friends. We were teammates and classmates at Brookline High School. He was also a relatively below average baseball player, <laughs> but actually he was a pretty good soccer player and a pitcher. And we both played infield and we've been friends since we were kids. So we actually started working together back in San Diego at the Padres. Larry Lucchino hired the two of us. In 2002, we were both fortunate to come work here for our hometown team. And we got hired on the same day. Uh, Theo actually negotiated our employment agreements as a package deal. Really? So that was helpful because Theo had been to law school at that point. And I hadn't, so he was a very good agent for both of us, and we've stayed in touch ever since. It's been great to see his success out in Chicago as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, how many people have had that track record of breaking two curses? It's amazing. <laughs> you know, he's uh, 46 years old, and he's already punched his ticket to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. It's just remarkable, and we've had so many incredible people come through the front office, and that's a testament to John Henry and Tom Werner and Larry Lucchino, who started this whole thing back that's, in 2002. That's you know?
1: what I want to ask you yeah. about, because Larry was one of your key mentors. Tours, I think. For sure. And so yes. he was in San Diego and he hired a young team, you, Theo, I'm sure some others and actually maybe some others that are also now general managers or senior people in baseball. Yes. So what was special about Larry?
0: Well, you know, Larry was the ultimate sort of player coach. You know, we talked about players <laughs> who didn't necessarily go on to become great managers. Larry, he was in the mix, in the action, negotiating deals, but also coaching and teaching along the way. He's more of an academic than people realize. <laughs> he, you know, went to Princeton undergrad and Yale Law School and put a huge weight and emphasis on education. And he really would always talk about hiring the best and brightest and bringing in young interns Mm -hmm. to start to think about the game a little bit different, either the business of the game or the actual sport on the field. And he continues to do that this day. I mean, he started at the Washington Redskins as a lawyer and then went to the Orioles, which is where he hired Theo as an intern, and then the Padres, where I joined the team, and then back here at the Red Sox. And there's executives from the. Larry Lucchino coaching tree, if you will, all over Major League Baseball and other sports. And just a really, really intense person, great executive, set the example through his work ethic. And still to this day in his quote unquote uh, retirement, he owns and operates a minor league team and he's working hard on building a new ballpark for our AAA affiliate out in Worcester. So he never (laughs)
1: rests and he's a pretty incredible guy. That's interesting because he was at the top of the pyramid and now he wanted to quote unquote slow down, but he's still running a team. Yeah, Larry Crazy. He doesn't know how to
0: slow he down. To slow down. And, yeah, I don't mind saying that publicly because it's <laughs> true. He's just one of these guys who achieves. You know, he wins World Series, Super Bowl rings, Final Four rings. I mean, everywhere he's gone, he's won and he's had success. And it's no accident because mm-hmm. of, he puts in the work and he really believes in bringing people around him to do their job and do it well. And, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, not just a Red Sox. He's in the Red Sox Hall of Fame, but I think he'll also be enshrined in Cooperstown
1: as well someday. Yeah, it's so interesting how you describe Larry as a mentor as a leader I've written about leaders like that and I'm now kicking myself for not profiling him in sports I profiled Bill Walsh as my primary person the San Francisco 49er head coach. legendary you talk about a coaching tree he is the number one well was the number one person in history really in in the NFL and it sounds like Larry was the same type of thing absolutely
0: and you see it as a huge credit to these leaders that have people that have worked for them that go on to other organizations they're excited it. they're proud of it yes exactly it's it's very
1: interesting because these types types of leaders are not afraid of being shown that any of their protégés are even better than them. Yes, in fact, yes. they take pride out of that,
0: yeah, which is unusual. Sure. It is, but you realize when you're in a position of leadership the the most important part mm-hmm. or quality of that job is making sure you have people around you on your team who yeah. are smarter, yeah. better, bigger, faster, stronger, <laughs> helping you achieve what you're trying to do. And I learned that from Larry for sure. Yeah, and I'm curious about when you got that job with the Padres. What was that job interview <laughs> yeah. like? It was actually a funny story. I had been intern at the New York Yankees and at the time Larry was very aggressively fighting for two things one trying to get a new ballpark built out in San Diego to sort of stabilize Mm -hmm. the Padres for the long term which he did but he was also very active at the Major League Baseball level Mm -hmm. and one of the things he was arguing for advocating for was revenue sharing Uh uh, because we were a small market in San Diego so he had a bit of a feud with George Steinbrenner and the Yankees so I come in there with my resume I was very proud of my experience with the Yankees and the first thing he did is he looked at my resume, saw Yankees, ripped it up, <laughs> literally threw it in the trash, and said, All right, this interview is over. I can't, I'm not going to interview someone who works for the <laughs> Yankees. So that was my introduction to Larry, but it you know, shows you how he cares about people. It was a junior, very junior position, a sales position mm-hmm. in the sponsorship department for mm-hmm. the Padres. We we're a small organization, maybe 80 people, but he took the time to meet every single uh, mm-hmm. full time employee that was coming into the organization. And that's something that I've tried to do as well as we yeah. grow, as you really want. You want to make sure at all levels
1: of the front office you're getting the best most talented people you can exactly you know this reminded me a little bit of a podcast i did with uh, mark shapiro who's the ceo of the blue jays and that one aired around all-star weekend in 2019 mm-hmm. and we talked a lot about leadership and yeah. he said one of the things that really has driven him and that he learned a lot from are the all blacks rugby team in new yes. zealand yeah and he's had some of those folks come in and when you walk into his office and he's got these whiteboards loaded with these different principles mm-hmm. of leadership and it was really something that th- to see in sport, it shouldn't be shocking to anyone, especially for someone like me that's in the leadership world. Yep. But he knew as much about leadership as any CEO I've ever talked to. Yeah, Mark's an
0: incredible guy. And it shouldn't be a surprise, his father, uh, Ron, was an incredible lawyer and has written many books on leadership right. and negotiation. And uh, Larry actually hired Ron to come in and give us courses and trained us really? in negotiations. Oh, an interesting yeah, connection. Way, way back, 25 years ago. But uh, they come from just a great family. And David Shapiro, Mark's younger brother, is involved in mentorship and leadership here in the philanthropic world or I should say the not-for-profit world, running the national mentoring organization. So incredible family. And the Jays, we're uh, not happy that he's in the American League against us. we had enough problems uh, with him in Cleveland, and now he's mm-hmm. up in the great white north with the Jays, and they've got a plan that they're sticking to, and they're going to be good in the American League East. So, but he's a good guy and a good friend and very, very committed to growing talent. You see it a lot. He's mm-hmm. also lost a lot of talent. Tremendous. Lost, as you say, you know people that have gone on from Cleveland to other. Their positions of success, and that's the ultimate compliment
1: to Mark. Right, right, and I remember when we were talking, he spent a bit of time talking about his biggest challenge, which is being in the same neighborhood as the Red Sox and the Yankees, <laughs> yeah. where the resource base is significantly different. And yeah. So, you know, in some ways, the degrees of difficulty for him are pretty significant. yeah, uh, Because he's not starting in the same starting line in terms of resources, in terms yeah, of money. For sure, we're blessed here, and, you know, we recognize that having worked, started
0: my career with the Yankees, and then going out to San Diego, and working at a smaller market mm-hmm. and coming back to Boston. It gives you a perspective and an appreciation yeah, right. for being in a market like this, where we have 14 million people in New England and incredible fan support. You look at what's happened here over the last 20 years mm-hmm. since we've been here. Forget the Red Sox. Think about the success that the Patriots have had, mm-hmm. the Bruins, the Celtics. I mean, it really is a championship expectation in the market. And right. I think that fuels everything. It makes everyone yeah. better. It really does help. So we're lucky
1: to be here with all this incredible fan support. That fuels everything I was going to ask you about that Because it's very interesting The pressure is unbelievable You know, I read the Boston papers I read the New York <laughs> I say it papers, all digital But you know what I mean yeah. The New York papers And I grew up in Montreal When it comes to hockey And the Canadians it was It was take no prisoners Life you or death. Have, It really seemed to be that way Yes in. It's just, you know, the word fan is, you know, fans, but fanatical Fan-y. comes there <laughs> yeah. as well. And it's got to be, it part of their lives at such a deep level.
0: Yeah. Well, and especially with the Red Sox, because we have this uh, gift, number one, of an incredible geographical region, you know, six New England states yeah. where hopefully most identify as uh, Boston sports fans and Red Sox fans. Mm-hmm. And then you have this longstanding tradition in history. So it's really a tradition passed down through generations. Mm-hmm. And so it's in our DNA. I grew up a mile down the street. So I can tell you, you can feel the mood if, you know, we're winning or losing. And it really is important. And people say, you know, geez, how do you deal with that sort of passion? To me, that's what you want. You know, I've worked in other places with mm-hmm. all due respect, even to New York mm-hmm. and San Diego. There's not the same connection and passion for the team. There just isn't. Boston is unique. its I think it's like Montreal with the, the Canadians. Yeah, we're, we're involved through our ownership group with Liverpool Football
1: Club okay, over, that's in, right.
0: over in England. And the passion of the mm-hmm. supporters, as we call them over here, is second to none. So I feel very fortunate. If you're going to work in sports, and if you're going to work in baseball, Boston's where you want to be because it matters more mm-hmm. here than anywhere else. I say that nothing because of what we've done. We've been a part of this incredible yeah. tradition, and our fans care so deeply. And that's what you want. So you have to take the good with the bad. When yeah. it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's bad. Yeah, and, you <laughs> know.
1: And I think you know, given the tremendous success of the Red Sox over the last, well, since 2000. For which is now a 15 plus year run, the expectations. Are high, and I don't know what the expectations were in 1950 and 1960. (laughs) Not you, but (laughs) you may not have been born, actually. (laughs) But fans—I don't know if they were used to losing, but that was the expectation. It's like what people said about the Cubs. You know, if there was a way to to blow it to lose, they're going to find, they're going to figure that out. And now the expectations are through the roof because you have figured it out. They've tasted, you know, they've gone to Mecca. They've tasted it; it's fantastic, and they want it. So I would think it's much more intense now. Yeah, it's interesting because
0: we would talk a lot about in the early days here. I joined in 2002 with John Henry and Tom Werner and Larry and Theo and we would talk about what may happen, you know, what would happen if we ever won the World (laughs) Series you know, would people still care? And what happened is exactly what you said. You reach that promised land and fuels this desire for more. And we're in a climate now you have to give the Kraft family credit Mm -hmm. for starting this era. I mean what they did winning a Super Bowl, now they've won six Super Bowls. I mean, it's just (laughs) otherworldly. I don't think we as New Englanders really understand what we're living through mm-hmm. with respect to the Patriots and the dynasty that they've mm-hmm. we, we've won four championships at the Red Sox but six Super Bowls in the mm-hmm. same period of time It's right. just remarkable mm-hmm. and so you're in a market where last year the Bruins for example lost in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals and it was a failure the season is a disappointment because mm-hmm. they didn't win the cup mm-hmm. you know and we, we didn't even make the playoffs so we became essentially irrelevant at the end of the year because the expectations as you say are so right. high and they should be I think it's a good thing because mm-hmm. you have this marketplace where we do have the resources, we do have the revenues to invest into baseball or hockey or football or basketball. And our fans expect it. And there's this incredible connection between the ownership groups where we really do work. We compete with each other mm. for share in the market, for dollars and TV ratings and such. in like. the Boston area? In the Boston area. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, we're competing for sponsors, we're competing for fans. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens is all the owners, really, truly, every ownership group here our family, yeah, is yeah. 100% committed to winning. And it has elevated the sort of statures. not what I grew up with. I was like sort of a Cubs fan. I grew up here thinking, and Theo was the same way. I can tell you, how are we going to lose? You know, 1975, okay. 78, 1986, you know, it was brutal. Then 2003 happened, and that was our second year here. And we really thought, after Aaron Boone hit that home run, that we were cursed. I mean, you know, it's just totally irrational, makes no sense. Theo's a data and analytics guy, and right. we looked at each other, and we really are cursed, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And then, of course, 04 happens and sort of exercise those demons. And since then, we've tried to build a culture where we're consistently positioned to win in October. And, but it's hard. We've had
1: a lot of luck along the way. We're well, really, yeah, yeah. you know, when you talk about the four ownership teams or groups yes. and the teams here in the New England area, the Boston area, when you surround yourself with excellence, it usually will raise your game as well. It doesn't mean yeah. you're winning championships. And I'm going to ask you about that as well. You know, when you get to the playoffs, I mean, the game is get to the playoffs. And after that, boy, anyone who knows anything about data knows you're an ultra small sample size so there and track. everybody's really, really good and one bounce one way or another. Sure. But, so there's no guarantee about that, obviously. But it, it drives you towards excellence. Yeah. Right. It and the same. other thing you said is that kind of this golden era and it reminds me, you know, I go back to Montreal and when I grew up watching the Canadians, it was like a Stanley Cup almost every year. Every, yeah. You know, yeah. I start watching hockey nineteen sixty seven is the first year I remember the, the Maple Leafs won, Toronto Maple Leafs won. That's the last cup they've won. As Maybe. a Montrealer, I'm not sad. You about had to remind that. you had to get, that, <laughs> I get that out there. Yeah, sure. To get uh, yeah. some hate mail out of that, including for some of my family who lives <laughs> in Toronto. But, but the Habs won in 68 and 69. The Bruins actually won in 70 and 72. Yep. And it was just a streak of something like six or eight cups in 10 or 12 years. And then when it ends, you don't realize, you know, it's yeah. that old song. You don't know what you got till, till it's, gone. it's gone. Absolutely, no.
0: And you know, we've tried to avoid that here, but let's not forget we've had four championships, but we've also had some down years. In, you know, as we've been repositioning for the next championship team, and it's really hard. The league construct is set up for competitive balance, and Major League Baseball, like the other sports, do a good job of making sure mm-hmm. you know you can't just buy your way to a championship. It just doesn't work. The yeah. numbers prove it out, and. Even if you do have more resources or you do have the ability to get back to the playoffs, as you said, the randomness in the postseason injury, bad bounce here or there, and, you know, your hopes are dashed. So it's really, really hard. And we do feel fortunate uh, to have been in a position to win. But we really are hungry for more. And it's great to be a part of a front office and an ownership group that is just fueled by winning. You know, John Henry and Tom Warner are wildly successful businessmen mm-hmm. from their other lives. Yes. They come into sports and it's not about the business. Mm -hmm. It's about winning. Mm -hmm. And that's what Fenway Sports Group is about, whether it's Red Sox or Liverpool Football Club or Roush Racing, our NASCAR team, Mm -hmm. or our television network. They want to be number one with the ratings. It's always about winning and the long term. We've always said that Warren Buffett is one of John and Tom's Mm -hmm. uh, heroes because they preach long term and Mm -hmm. long
1: term sustained success. So that's what the goal is. We were just touching on this idea of playoffs you know, in baseball, and actually the, I mean, a wild card game is one game, which is really kind of amazing. And then (laughs) there's a three out of five, and then four out of seven, two times. And I know this is not about to change, and this generates a ton of revenue and excitement and interest, but there is a fundamental illogic to that if you're going to play 162 games. no, And it used to be, you know, that there were two teams at the end of that, and yeah, they deserve it, you know, and whatever happens, happens. It's never going to go away, but it's an illogic to this, because you play so many games in baseball. Yeah, the logical answer to that is, when your division, <laughs> and you're not
0: playing in that one game play. You know, get
1: away from but that one th- game play. Sam, out. even the three out of five
0: <laughs> is yeah. Yeah, pretty a,
1: spooky. When you've done 162 games, yeah,
0: it's and we really do not want to play in that one game playoff. You know, you'd rather be in it than not. Of course, um, but if, you know, look as you expand the playoffs, and if you have more teams that come in, you know, there's just such a premium on winning that division and getting that yeah. by. And then you're right, three out of five in a short series, it can be really scary. Actually, the most intense. Series we've had mm-hmm. have been those division series, those three out of five. Whether it was with Oakland or mm-hmm. Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim or Cleveland, we've had some really, really intense New York Yankees in 2018. Really intense division series because of the nature of, of a short yeah. series. You're by definition, you get through game one, then you're
1: playing. It's an almost elimination sudden death. Game, isn't it? As, yeah. as close yeah. as you get to sudden death, it's that's that's right. not in, that's right. in baseball. That's right. And in 2019, so the Washington, I was about to say the Senators, but yes. that won't. Yes. That, yes. That won't yes. Were. They won. Yep. When, weren't they a wild card? Yeah, they were sort of
0: dead and gone in May. They they got off to yeah, yeah, a really, yeah. really bad start. And it just shows you, you know, baseball, it's a long, we have a different product. It's 162 right. games and you're not out of it. You can, typically, the rule of thumb is, is if you're, you know, a 500 team, you win one, you lose one mm-hmm. until the all-star break. Yeah. Then you can start to gear up and get ready for a postseason stretch. I mean, 2004, we were just sort of hanging around the hoop, to use a basketball analogy, and. Mm-hmm until uh, mid-August when we went on a pretty terrific winning streak so it really is a, the long term of the season yeah. and, and health you know
1: the Nationals got great pitching which typically always helps that in the are, postseason yeah it's something to see and just for the record being a Montreal Expos fan I am claiming some credit personally as a fan <laughs> you have to <laughs> yes if you <laughs> don't take Nationals. it someone else will so well I mean, you know <laughs> <laughs> when I was emailing or with friends or after they won and I would always say you know nay like N-E with an accent E, which yeah. means born, right? Born, May yeah. Expos, yes. <laughs> whenever I whenever yes. I describe.
0: Well, we were fortunate to, Mark and I and the Red Sox and the Jays made a deal to go play each other up in Montreal a couple years ago for exhibition games. Mm-hmm. And boy, it was fantastic. It was intense. We had 100,000 people over two Was it in Montreal it's, or Toronto? It was Montreal. It was Montreal. Yeah, we did a preseason an exhibition <sighs> game and we sold out at the stadium. Is it called Bell Stadium? Bell? Uh, well, Bell is in for Montreal? the hockey. Yes, and- and- yeah. Olympic Stadium. It was the Olympic Stadium. Yes, thank you. And uh, it was intense, and I couldn't yeah. believe it. These were spring training games. Yeah, but It was great. Just a beautiful city, and there's talk of I want to ask you about uh, yeah, that. Uh, of a possible split season with Tampa, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. I know there's been some back and forth between the elected officials in St. Petersburg and the yeah. ownership of the Rays, but I commend the Rays. I think it's a very creative solution, and anything that grows the game of baseball mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. We're all obviously biased, because we also think it'd be great you know, in the American League East, if you had Montreal and Toronto, Boston, New right. York. It a lot be, closer. Yeah, right? for travel, it'd be terrific. And there's a great rivalry that you can set up. And then, but keeping games in Tampa would also work. I thought it was a very creative solution right. to
1: a problem that, that needs to be solved. How does a thing like that actually happen? The owners have to vote, and, and yes. it's like two thirds or three quarters or unanimously. It, I don't know. Yeah, there would have to be
0: consensus at the major league level. But obviously, the first step is a business transaction for the ownership group in Tampa. We're sure. on their lease figuring out what happens in Tampa and can they make a deal to build a new yeah. stadium there? Can they make a deal to build a new <laughs> stadium in Montreal?
1: There are a lot of uh, steps required before yeah. we get there.
0: Yeah, it's difficult, but you need to have the game in markets that can support and that will support mm-hmm. the teams. That's just the bottom line. And it's been hard. The Rays have, you know, just we see them as a competitor on the field. Mm-hmm. They've done everything right. They've done a really, really mm-hmm. remarkable job. And unfortunately, they haven't got the fan support. That they deserve. So hopefully they will as they continue yeah. to put a good team on the field,
1: and we'll see what happens. I know they've got some hard decisions ahead of them. We we're talking a little bit about innovation when you talk about Tampa. You talk about innovation baseball. I mean, weren't they were they the first team to do the what do they call that when is the, the reliever the opener the opener yes yeah, yes yeah. So I mean, we're doing a lot of baseball talk, and not everybody who listens is a baseball fan. So <laughs> the opener means it's a relief pitcher. It's a it's a it only goes one inning yeah. as opposed to the person you hope will go five or eight. Innings. That's right. I think. Mean, it's also code for we don't have a fourth or a fifth starter. Well, yeah. Okay, so you have <laughs> so, a problem, yes. but they came
0: up with a really creative solution. A- absolutely, and in fact, one of the reasons we hired I M. Bloom uh, about a month or so ago was he was one of the young creative minds in the Tampa Bay Rays uh, front office, and we recruited him up uh, here. He as our the new, ge- he's, he's our new general, he's manager, general manager, and he was at the Rays organization for 15 years, and very, very creative, and but Matt Silverman and Andrew Friedman, who had been down at the Rays, now out at the Dodgers, really did a great job. The level of competition as you learn from talking to Mark it just keeps getting higher. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of what the Yankees have done, you know, they keep Mm -hmm. winning 100 games every season, they've really Mm -hmm. done a great job. So it's harder and harder every single year to be competitive, especially in this division, but it's what makes it fun and interesting. So I want to ask you a bit more about Tally, you mentioned High and Bloom, and is it head
1: of baseball operations? Yes,
0: his technical title is Chief Baseball Officer. We keep coming up with different titles and
1: CBO in our
0: industry, but he is the top baseball operations official and not an easy job, especially in Boston. ton of pressure, but he is a special guy. He grew up in the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. He probably couldn't get into Dartmouth, so he went to Yale uh, <laughs> instead. And uh, he was a classics major at Yale, mm-hmm. but just absolutely baseball nut. And to his credit, like a lot of us, knew that you know playing wasn't going to be for him, so he went out mm-hmm. and got his first internship mm-hmm. with the Tampa Bay Rays organization mm-hmm. and worked his way up to their number two job and we hired him for our number one job a couple months ago and he's done a great job but it's early days he of keeps course. saying he's in the honeymoon period he's so smart he knows that he's in the honeymoon period uh, uh, well until spring done training, training. Yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> what
1: are the kind of the skill sets that you were looking for and how is that different than what it may have been a year ago or five years ago yeah
0: sure well the first thing is we've had a i've been here for 18 years and we've had incredible stability you know organizations mm-hmm. i think are best served by stability and mm-hmm. that starting with ownership so obviously John Henry and Tom Warner they bought the club at the end of all one and have been here the whole time we've had two CEOs with Larry Lucchino and myself I was very fortunate to have that mentorship and succeed him we've had four general managers in the time Theo Epstein and Ben Charrington and Dave Dombrowski and now Hyam. and mm-hmm. I think that is a reflection of the nature of that job you know mm-hmm. there is probably if we're being honest a shelf life on mm-hmm. uh, the general manager chief baseball officer or president mm-hmm. of baseball operations role. It is 24-7, seven days a week. The public scrutiny, the pressure. You get probably way too much blame and not enough credit for the things mm-hmm. that you've done. And if you think about it, someone like Ben Charrington, who did an amazing job for us, uh, he grew up in the organization, won us a World Series championship in 13, made a decision affirmatively in 14 and 15 to not trade part ways with some of the prospects that ended up helping us win the 2018 championship. He wasn't here to experience that, and I think that's just, if we're being honest, is a cruel part of our business, mm-hmm. especially in baseball. You know, you have a NHL draft pick; they can contribute seemingly the next year on the ice, or the best football. of them can. Yes, yeah. And in baseball, it takes so long to develop. Yeah. So, you know, Bill Walsh, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I remember Theo speaking about Bill Walsh. Kind of the eight to ten year window is about the max that you typically see. Now, mm-hmm. my friend Brian Cashman in New York, it's a whole nother animal. He has survived 20 years. It's just remarkable. It it, Uh, it, it is. Credit to him. But anyway, you asked about Haim. He's uh, very intellectually curious, obviously hardworking, creative, but he has an incredible humility about him, and he's really seamlessly integrated with the staff, people, because we have these crazy rules in baseball where you can't uh, poach people from other teams without permission, and so there won't be a lot of, if any, members of the Tampa Bay organization. This is true for management Yes, anyone. Correct. Certainly not. Ball players. Yes, when we, going all the way back to 02, when we came here, Larry Lucchino had left San Diego to join John Henry and Tom Horner to try and buy the Red Sox, and he was asking permission to hire me and Theo to join him, and the owners in San Diego did not grant permission for several months, so my parents and Theo's parents uh, started a campaign, you know, free the Brookline too, let them come back home <laughs> to their, uh, their hometown. So there's these rules that are obviously set up to protect the teams and the organizations from people jumping around, but anyway, Haim has fitted well with the leadership group. Again, it's taking nothing away from Dave Dombrowski, who probably will also be in Cooperstown. This guy, he won in Florida, great track record in Detroit, great track record in Montreal, World Series championship in Boston. And so it's really, really difficult. And so Dave, we, we parted ways with Dave about a year ago, and he just did a great job. We thank him. And now we bring in Haim, who is very different, different style of leadership. It doesn't make it better or right or wrong. It's just Dave was clearly the right guy for us at the time when we brought him in, and now we're hopeful that Haim will be the right guy as we go forward. There's a tremendous age difference. Yes. Dave Dombrowski has yeah. been in it
1: for decades and decades. And yes. How old is yes. time? Yes. Haim Hyam's only, let's see, he's probably his mid-30s. Mid-30s. Yeah. Mid thir- yeah. There yeah. certainly is a trend towards younger leadership in baseball. It's really it, remarkable. Actually, it is,
0: and I think things go in cycles, though. <laughs> I think it's a, maybe a little bit like political <laughs> administrations where things sort of go mm-hmm. back and forth, where there's a, sometimes, a premium on experience Mm -hmm. and having done the job before. The Pittsburgh Pirates, for example, just went through a search and they were committed to bringing in someone with general manager experience and so Ben Charrington was hired there. We were more focused on someone who we thought would fit really well with our top four executives. Ultimately we were considering our internal options. We have great men and women that lead the baseball operations department, but we thought after 15 years of not a lot of Mm -hmm. changeover and turnover that it would be nice to bring in someone from the outside from a division opponent who we really respected and admired. So we're grateful that Stu Sternberg allowed us the opportunity to hire Haim. And that's what happens when you have good people above
1: them. Sometimes you need to leave an organization to like any organization. That's completely true. But you also raised something I hadn't thought of but there has been and there was some great talent. There could have been internal candidates. There yes. were internal candidates. Yes, there were and four of them. In yes. many business settings, when that happens, some of those will leave because mm. that's what they wanted. And others see that talent. Now, yes. you don't have the same free agency, yeah. so to speak, for managerial level talent, but still. You're 100% right. And
0: the four individuals that I mentioned, Brian O'Halloran, Raquel Ferreira, Eddie Romero, Zach Scott, I believe wholeheartedly, each and every one of them, mm-hmm. if they want, will become a general manager. Manager or really? a uh, top baseball operations official, absolutely. They all they have such complementary skill sets mm-hmm. uh, in baseball operations. Whether it's analytics, whether it's pure baseball ops, whether it's mm-hmm. scouting, player development, mm-hmm. whether it's international markets, and the challenge for Haim to come in and to get the most out of right. them and lead that group is a big one. He's coming in from the outside. That group, our group, has been here together for yeah. nearly twenty I, years. I
1: can see a big challenge. It's really. a big challenge. You guys you're tight, you're successful, and here's someone from the outside, and he is inheriting a team. He's not building his team. That's right. He's
0: coming in from the outside, and what we now have the responsibility, we need to be intellectually honest and say, look, Hmm. we've made some mistakes, we've done some things the right way in the past, let's have this new energy, this new way of thinking, Mm -hmm. Mm complement our existing team.
1: Who knows? Let's hope we're successful, but we're certainly not arrogant enough to think that it's going to be successful. Absolutely. (laughs) The problem or the challenge you're describing is so common in business you bring in some of them on the outside because of their skills and their talents and then they want to fit into the culture and the culture especially the Red Sox culture yeah. it's pretty powerful yeah. it's easy to socialize the new person, I'm not even talking necessarily of Pine Bloom, yep. it's just know, yep. general, it's, it happens. And you end up driving out some of the very characteristics and talent and idiosyncrasies and kind of left field, literally, yeah. left field yep. thinking yep. that you hired the person in the first place. Yeah. That's a real tough. It's a tough balance, and it will be
0: interesting. My hope is that we're able to retain all of the talent that I mentioned. They're all signed up in long-term contracts, but that doesn't prohibit them from going to another organization. And I think they, as I mentioned, all will get that. And that should be seen as a real compliment to the organization. We've had people go on to other places. I mean, the Cubs won the World Series. There was a sense of pride within the Red Sox front office Mm -hmm. because, you know, John Henry, Tom Werner, Larry Lucchino— should feel that. There was a lot of Red mm-hmm. Sox, former Reds, and not just Theo, mm-hmm. but a group of executives, men and women, that went with him to Chicago yeah. and achieved something very cool. Plus, it's easier to root for the Cubs. You know? and <laughs> we wouldn't have been so happy if we went to the Yankees or the Jays or the Rays in the division, but what's nice about our industry is probably like most industries you work with. I mean, there is a great incredible bond between the mm-hmm. people. You're competitors, mm-hmm. but you also are in this uh, crazy business together it's and,
1: true, and but you build these friendships. It's true, but baseball I think all sports are different in that you're affiliates of sorts of a, an umbrella organization, yes. Major League Baseball, the NFL, yes. and the NBA. And yep. and so you are partners, actually. You cannot survive as an independent that's by right. definition. Yep. Most industries, many people probably say, I'd like to survive without all these other guys because yeah. that's more market share for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit, that's it, right. we're it franchises. Lends itself that. Yeah. Your franchise it yep. lends itself, but it also means you got to really follow, I think, some rules of the road of how you behave because oh, yeah. you don't want to get ostracized. You don't want to be seen as the kind of breaking all the rules and it's just there's um
0: the league office is so important because essentially Mm -hmm. as an industry we set the collective bargaining agreement we have the governance for the rules and Mm -hmm. regulations how it all works Mm -hmm. so it is we're partners in this industry and our job is to grow the game of baseball Mm -hmm. you know we're a roughly nine billion dollar industry and if we're not headed to 12 and 15 and 18 Mm -hmm. billion we're going to be in trouble so we're working to grow the game with our partners around the country and you have to remember that we're more competition from a business perspective Mm -hmm. with local entertainment options than we are Mm the Kansas City Royals, for example. Yeah, we play them on the field, but in terms of our business, we're more in
1: competition with the local. Yes, because that, that's your customer that has a certain amount of time, a certain amount of money. Exactly. And a certain yeah. amount of heart to give. That's right. That's right. right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And now,
0: like we talked about earlier, the, I mean, the expectations. You know, the New England Patriots, if they lose one game in a season, the, the well, sky is falling. <laughs> exactly. You can't, you can't You can't. do that.
1: It's amazing. It, it, that's right. And so you mentioned Dave Dombrowski for a moment. Can you tell us why there was a parting of the ways and how that went?
0: It, you know, it was uh, without going into any details. We just felt it was time for... New leadership, new ideas, but again, not taking anything away sure. from Dave and what he did. We, he did an amazing job coming in at a time we'd come off of two last place finishes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had a great crop of young players, and he was able to complement that yeah. crop of young players with veteran talent that right. achieved something that you know most teams would only dream of winning a World Series. And so, you know, I wish him the best personally and professionally. And I think he'll be in Cooperstown. I really mm-hmm. believe that. But I also think his work is not done. I think he'll likely run mm-hmm. another team based operations yeah. for a team. you know It's very competitive, and there's a premium on
1: people that have won championships. Because not that many of them floating right. around, are they? That's right. That's, That's right. exactly right. So this is also interesting. A couple of last place finishes, and so I was looking at the decade that just uh, wrapped up, mm-hmm. and the Yankees had the best record in Major League Baseball. They were in the postseason 7 out of 10 times. They didn't win one World Series. Mm-hmm. And the Red Sox were in the postseason by my count, 4 out of 10 times, mm-hmm. including a couple of last place. So But two World Series. And I think most fans will Red Sox result over the Yankees (laughs) result. But I wonder whether it's a different philosophy, which is that the Red Sox were willing to go down a path that had a higher likelihood... I'm making this up so you tell me if it's right. A higher likelihood of failure as in a last place finish. And the Yankees chose, I don't know about shows, but definitely didn't want to see that happen. Yeah. And they just did enough so that they were always in, almost always in the running. In the running. And it's a different, because now, you know, over the last few years in baseball, never mind these two giants, but Houston Astros were awful for a long, long time. And it seems like that's almost a strategy. And it's been a critique, really, of Major yeah. League Baseball. I wish while. I could tell you that
0: that was right. And we had a very <laughs> affirmative strategy. But you too. were trying to win. I, I know you were. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you think about it. I mean, just look at last year, for example. You know, we 2018 was magical. We won 108 games. We essentially rolled through the playoffs yep. and won a World Series with incredible young talent, veteran mm-hmm. talent, players from international markets, homegrown players. It just was special. We brought back nearly the identical team, mm-hmm. save for Craig Kimbrell and Joe Kelly. And we just didn't have the focus or the fire or the energy. Gee, I don't know what it was to be. If I knew, yeah, we would have mm. fixed it. But we just didn't get it done in 2019 mm. with largely the same personnel. If you think about 2014, going back to the last uh, season after a championship, mm-hmm. we had a lot of the same personnel, arguably a better team with some you know, coming out of spring training, and we ended up finishing last. Now, that was a little bit misleading because mm-hmm. we recognized at the trade deadline that it was probably better to make some changes for that
1: next group. Yeah, and that that's next- the point where you actually yeah. do make the conscious Joy. Yes. yes. That's not winning. But yes. you don't start off that That's way. That's right. Which and, uh, some teams do, I think. Yeah. You know, I can't speak for other
0: teams, but for us... We're here always trying to win each and every year, but we have had seasons, 2012, 2014, where we affirmatively sold off players at either the trade deadline or the non-waiver trade deadline. Of course, that's no longer an option, but it proved out, it turned out Mm -hmm. to be very positive. In 12, we made that big deal with the Dodgers, and we won a World Series in 13. In 14, we sold actually four of our five starting pitchers at the trade deadline, and then we repositioned ourselves for a championship And we I thought we could have won Frankly in 16 or 17 mm-hmm. We were to your point About the randomness Of the postseason yeah. We were just as yeah. good But it finally happened
1: In 18 And so in 19 The same team Pretty much Produced a very Disappointing season So is it a psychological thing? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, baseball
0: is, um, and there's so much that goes into it, but absolutely. I think mm-hmm. baseball and golf are two <laughs> sports that are, you know, really played mm-hmm. between your ears. And obviously you have to have the God given physical tools and talent, but you don't see, I don't think anyway, football players or hockey players or basketball players mm-hmm. go into a deep Slump the way you can in baseball. And there has to be Mm -hmm. something more than just, you know, you're not physically feeling up to the challenge. I think there's a lot that goes on Mm -hmm. in your head. And so keeping that focus and intensity Mm -hmm. for six, seven months is just a really tall order. Mm -hmm. And that's why you give these managers and general managers credit who are able to get
1: it done and be consistent for that long period of time. Yeah, that's uh, really, I mean, that's really interesting. So, So golf and baseball are, when golf is different because it's only individual yep. really yep. but baseball is much more of an individual I mean you, you, you're the only guy up there yeah. batting you're the only person pitching you're the only guy in, in left field etc and certainly football is the opposite basketball maybe more of a hybrid but also very team or, and hockey yeah so I could see that and you can hide in some of these other sports <laughs> you know, as
0: a very below average ice hockey player myself in high school <laughs> you can skate up and down that wing and you know just sort of blend in whereas in yeah. baseball it's individual you're at the plate you're in the right. field and so It is a team game, but it's very, very much
1: an individual sport at times. So has there been any energy, any attempt to measure the psychological side of this because baseball has been the innovator when it comes to sports analytics. Yeah. Everyone's doing it yeah. in every sport. And, you know, you have the award wins above replacement yeah. statistic, which is probably still one of the most meaningful statistics. And you look at the Red Sox 18 and 19, 2018, 2019, I don't know that that overall expectation of war was very, of wins above replacement is very different. No, um, no. But the result was dramatically different. And so, yeah, if it is a psychological dimension and you think about, it, you're in the business of valuing talent. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you make mistakes valuing a talent, that's a disastrous situation. absolutely. So how do you think about that?
0: Well, I'll tell you, we certainly don't have it figured out because in 2013, I think our internal, you know, we model the season and we run the outcomes and you can run a season 200, 300, 400 times. I think we had ourselves winning 83 to 85 games Mm -hmm. in 2013. We won 98 games and we won the World Series. (laughs) The flip side of that, coming out of 2018, Mm -hmm. we absolutely thought we were going to be a 93. A 95-win team and 19 invested 240 plus million dollars on players and we were an 84-win team. So it can be humbling. But you ask the question: how do you handle it? How do you value you players? We really try to take the most sophisticated approach we can. We deploy yeah. analytics, but we do have a very, very high emphasis still on the human element. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the ability to interview players, talk to their coaches, talk to people they have personal relationships with, our skills. Scouts are so valuable. They're the backbone mm-hmm. of the organization. Mm-hmm. The hardest thing for us is actually not in the amateur markets and identifying players to draft. You only have you know one pick in that first round wherever your order may be. Right. You know? The harder thing for us, where we've, I think, struggled the most in our 18, 19 years, is identifying those free agents who have great numbers, who mm-hmm. demonstrated the ability to deliver war mm-hmm. way above the industry in another market. And then as a free agent, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. come to Boston Mm -hmm. and can you deliver and have success here in this market? Mm -hmm. That has been the hardest thing to figure out because of what you said, the psychological element. Playing in Boston Mm -hmm. in front of a full house, front of a packed clubhouse with the media every single night is for certain players like Johnny Damon or Manny Ramirez or Kevin Millar or Pedro or Curt Schilling. I mean, Mookie Betts, all these guys Mm -hmm. who have won. But there's other players where we've had bad signings where they have, and it's been largely because they didn't like Boston. I was at a speaking engagement. I mentioned Warren Buffett earlier. Mm -hmm. He talked a lot about happiness. And Mm -hmm. if you love what you're doing every single day, you're going to be so much better at it. And if you don't, Love your environment and where you're playing, and the energy in that clubhouse or in that city, it can be a disaster. Yeah. So this market is not for everybody. I can tell you, it is absolutely for us in management. We love it here because it hurts to lose here. But there's nothing like winning in Boston. There really, it's probably like Montreal. You know, winning a Stanley Cup. So, there's yeah. just very few markets. Green Bay Packers. You know, winning a Super Bowl. People chip are chip not chips. casual about
1: no. about it. And, there's and, nothing and, casual, and that's about. a symmetrical thing and because they'll pile on when it's not going it, right, but exactly. they'll do the reverse in a really nice, it, positive way, it, right? Exactly. And, and my favorite great. is
0: when we lose on opening day, and you no, know the it's st- over. It's over. It seems to be uniquely a Boston
1: thing. I'm sure it happens in other markets. Oh, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we feel it here for sure. So one of the earliest podcasts I did was with Jim Beatty, sure, who was long time. Yes. general manager yes. at one yes. point. He was a long time scout for yes. the Toronto Blue Jays. Yes. In fact, yes. and yes. pitched for the Yankees. The Dartmouth, yeah, it? Dartmouth, yeah, I was a Dartmouth guy. Yeah, and so as a scout, we talked a lot about analytics and scouting and the two kind of, and of course, the money ball thing that, mm-hmm. I don't know about revolutionized, but popularized sure. people in your industry yep. knew about that because yep. of Bill James and others, right? For sure. Jim Beattie said, you know, absolutely, you have to have the best analytics, but let's not underestimate the power Total. of that interpersonal yeah. skill. That's right. And you're getting at that, too, 100%. Uh, to try to get at that psychology, but... If I compare the precision, the sophistication of these two avenues of evaluating talent, one's pretty impressive. There's a lot of data to say that makes sense. And the other one, well, it's all over the map. Yeah,
0: and it's much harder to measure. I probably fall more on the side of the human element, the interpersonal interaction. Mm-hmm. I believe analytics matter. We've used them successfully for as long as I've been here. In fact, going back to San Diego, Theo, and we actually had another Epstein, a guy named Eddie Epstein who mm-hmm. is deploying analytics with Kevin Towers in our baseball operations mm-hmm. department. And John Henry has a long-standing relationship with many baseball executives around the game, but he had a relationship with Bill James and was sort of the godfather of baseball yeah. analytics. But all of that is great. Mm-hmm. But if you cannot play in this city, in this yes. environment, yep. if you can't communicate effectively with people, we can have the best information. But if you can't communicate that information mm-hmm. to the coaching staff or to the players, what good is it? So you really really need to Mm -hmm. have a blend of both. And I think the smartest people in the world, the best leaders, the best baseball executives, probably true for other sports, are ones Mm -hmm. that can take a very complicated issue and boil it down and make it simple and understandable. And so we try to think about that Mm -hmm. because, boy, if you start getting confused or or too much information,
1: Mm -hmm. is not easily digestible, you can be in big trouble. Right. So we're sitting in a conference room at Fenway and you have these iconic photos on the wall of one superstar after another, even Babe Ruth in a Red Sox uniform in 1918, I think it says. That was one that got away. (laughs) Every now and then. Uh, But the one that really struck me here is Pumpsy Green, who is someone I profiled in a book I wrote once on mistakes organizations make. And 1959, he came in as a pinch runner in Chicago's Comiskey Park, and he thereby became the first African-American ball player to ever play for the Red Sox. And the Red Sox, as you know, of course, were the last major league team to integrate. And now, it's not just about Red Sox, but it seems like there's a lot of Latin players... It doesn't seem like there's a lot of African-American ballplayers. Yeah,
0: in baseball and most of the major sports, we all have our individual challenges, but baseball continues to, needs to continue to do a better job of recruiting players from all races and ethnicities and backgrounds into baseball. We do a particularly good job, I think, in a lot of the international markets where baseball is really, really popular. And we do have some good underlying data and indicators about participation. There's a big wall Wall Street Journal article several months ago showing that the participation in the games since 2014 is actually up 20%. I'm not sure if you know how much credit we actually deserve for that if it's people migrating from football and mm-hmm. soccer sports mm-hmm. where you have head injuries coming over to play baseball. But it's an opportunity for us. But uh, anyway, the Red Sox, one of the things that I'm most proud of working for John Henry and Tom Werner and Larry mm-hmm. Lucchino, when we arrived here in 2002, they mm-hmm. tackled this issue of race head-on and mm-hmm. just acknowledged the shameful mm-hmm. past mm-hmm. that the Red Sox have. And we have to acknowledge that and own that. We were the last team to integrate about 15 years after Jackie Rod. Robinson, you know, having the opportunity to sign Jackie Robinson, probably one of the biggest mistakes in the history of sports. And that yeah. uh, wasn't until Pumpsy Green came along that mm-hmm. we integrated. And it wasn't until years later that we integrated in the front office. So we need to continue to be mindful of that mm-hmm. and focused on that. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to be an open, inclusive organization uh, mm-hmm. with respect to race, and gender and sexual orientation. And that goes for our fan base as well. And one of the things we're really proud of is making sure that Fenway is uh, open to all and everyone in Boston, everyone in New England feels like the Red Sox mm-hmm. are their team. It's not just for a certain
1: segment right. of the population. Right. You know, we've talked about Bill Walsh a little bit. And one of the really amazing things Bill Walsh did as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers in football is he developed the first NFL program to identify high potential ex-NFL ball players as potential head coaches or assistant coaches that were African-American. Yeah. And he's probably single-handedly the reason why there are any African-American head coaches in the NFL. Well, even today in you know 2020 yep. and so he really went far out of his way and you know did he care about diversity yeah, i'm sure he did but he also saw a talent pool that was completely That's untapped right. and right. it was illogical to yeah. him and so i guess the question is are there efforts like that in baseball to try to tap into a talent base and you can call it a fan base as well but a talent base uh, from the african american community yeah well without
0: question we need to do a better job because you look at the data and the statistics yeah and yeah, the numbers. Yeah. But we have um, real effort at the Major League Baseball level in terms of hiring when you're out uh, interviewing for managerial positions mm-hmm. or general manager positions. Mm-hmm. The C-League rule requires that you interview diverse uh, candidates. Yep. We hired Alex Cora because he was the best, man- he was the hottest managerial candidate on the planet, but he's also mm-hmm. the first manager of color for the Boston Red Sox. So that got a lot of attention and he obviously wins a World Series the next year. I think it was validated that he was, the reason we hired him he was the right guy For the job. So, but we know we need to do a better job in in terms of growing the game. You do that by introducing kids at six, seven, eight years Mm -hmm. old, having them fall in love with baseball. So, how do you do that? Well, you have them playing and participating, but you also have to get them to come to Fenway. Right. And one of the things we focused on is accessibility. Mm -hmm. So, We've since two thousand fifteen, we've taken the approach. We do not ever want to hear ever that Fenway Park is not affordable for kids, students, Mm -hmm. middle school, high school, college kids. So we've affirmatively Mm -hmm. held back tickets for every single game for nine dollars on the day of the game. You come up, purchase nine bucks, your student show your student ID, come into Fenway. Mm -hmm. Now it's still nine dollars, so it's not free, Uh but we think that a nine dollar ticket is, you know, less than the cost of a movie ticket or other entertainment. And much less than the regular price. (laughs) Exactly, and get kids, uh, young kids... Into it's Fenway true. Park and it, to fall in love with it the way that we did because it wasn't true. that expensive when
1: we were kids. And you know the other thing that helps young kids get interested and in, from minority communities is they have role models. They see someone and they say, yeah, I'm, this is actually an issue for women in business. In fact, you know there are not enough women that are CEOs of companies, and yep. Yep. that those are the role models. You want to see someone doing the type of job that you can now aspire yourself to have that aspiration for yourself. Absolutely
0: right. right. And It's a great thing about the 2018, 19, and now we're going into the 20. 20- 2020 season in terms of role models and a very diverse Ross. whether it's our manager from the pride of Caguas, Puerto Rico, or Mookie Betts, or Jackie Bradley Jr., or Rafi Devers, or Xander Bogarts, or Christian Vasquez, it's really a reflection of what's so great about baseball, and that's the diversity and the people that play the game from all over the world. But right, you need to have role models I'm the parent of a 16-year-old and Mm -hmm. a 14-year-old and my 14-year-old daughter is thankfully growing up in a much different environment than even my generation. She sees
1: opportunities everywhere. That's really, really important. Right. Two last quick questions for you, Sam. Thank you so much for the time and being on the Sidcast. uh, So, first, I like to ask an advice question, but it's got a little spin to it, which is advice to yourself. You can imagine (laughs) going back in time to the 21 year old Sam Kennedy and (laughs) kind of just somehow you're sitting next to him and he's doing whatever he's doing. (laughs) And you lean over and you say, There's one thing I really want you to know about life, about business, about family, about, about anything. What would that be? Other than go
0: to the Tuck School uh, for business? Is that that (laughs) probably something other than that? Okay. (laughs) It would be relationships are all that matter, yeah. really. That's mm-hmm. it. At the end of the day, real human relationships, authentic mm-hmm. relationships will come back to help you in ways that you can't even imagine. Because I think human beings in business and sports and politics and academia mm-hmm. are genuinely wired to help each other. Mm-hmm. And so I really, really think it's important for, whether it was me going back 20 years ago, 30 sure. years ago, or giving advice to young people cherish and treasure the relationships yeah. that you are able to forge in mm-hmm. high school and college because you never know they can stay with you throughout your right. career right. that would my number one piece of advice to people now or, or my younger self is just cherish those relationships because th- that's
1: what really matters yeah invest in them take the time yes. to, because in the end they were all people yes, and people exactly. have that social need last question is more I guess another personal one about your partner your spouse how you met <laughs> <laughs> people love that <laughs> they, love to know they, those stories yeah, that's what well, I want to ask you well
0: for my wife and I that was easy we were students at uh, Trinity College in Hartford Connecticut mm-hmm. together and little known fact uh, she dated a fraternity brother of mine and I dated a sorority sister of hers so that's yeah. how we actually met And but we've been married uh, since 1998 and met in 1993 so she is the brains of the family she worked on Wall Street she has her CFA but uh, when we uh, signed up to go out to San Diego yeah. she jumped on board and said you know what let's do this and so I'm so grateful grateful for her willing to be a part of the baseball universe and we're very very lucky you had two kids and, and I think that you know the best professional thing that can happen to Mm -hmm. you is to have an incredibly supportive and engaged family. You know, here, John and Tom allow our families to come to the games Mm -hmm. and travel with us. Mm -hmm. And so it's Mm -hmm. really important because it's a crazy lifestyle. Not that other businesses don't have crazy lifestyles, but we have 120 nights a year where we're out and not at home. And so uh, building that family sort of culture uh, and putting a premium on having a great home life
1: and family life is really, really important. It's pretty interesting how many great leaders I have interviewed or worked with that say something like that. And, you know, you think hardcore business, you got to hit the numbers, but they care about people. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Therefore, people care about them and yeah, the company well, and
0: the organization. Well said. And I think yeah. it's an act. It's a shill if someone says, you know, it's just about the numbers and the hardcore. And I understand, especially publicly traded companies mm-hmm. have to meet the expectations mm-hmm. and earnings and all that. But you just said, businesses are all about the people that are inside them. They're not about yeah. anything other other than the people that are making the products or selling the products or Mm -hmm. deciding who goes on the field or what the fan experience is like.
1: It's all about the people. Sam Kennedy, thank Mm -hmm. you again for being on the SitCast. Great conversation. And let's see what success comes for the Red Sox in 2020. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.